You're in Golders Green. It's a long way from Whitechapel. It is. Yeah, yeah, it's a schlep. So You're for how the... long have you had to buy the kosher food away from the East End? Oh, for years now. Um, there used to be a Grudzinski's. That's closed. There used to be Cohen's Smokehouse. You kosher smoked salmon in Alderney Road. That's long gone. There isn't now a kosher butcher, baker, nothing. How can you call it the East End without the schmaltz having in sight? You know, dreadful, dreadful. Do you remember there used to be mossy marks down the lane? And so Keeping memories alive and holding on to a way of life, even when it's against the odds. That's what this edition of Sounds Jewish is all about. And that's, of course, also at the heart of the Hanukkah story that I remember growing up with. The miracle of survival of the Maccabees and the story of that oil lasting for eight days instead of one. In this Hanukkah week, it feels like the right time to reflect on some amazing stories of determination, hope and passion. These are not stories from the Old Testament, but recent tales of ordinary people who in their own way are keepers of the flame. I'm Alan Dean and I'm back in the kosher supermarket at Golders Green with Leon Silver, the President, Senior Warden and Treasurer of Nelson Street Synagogue. It's one of the last bastions of a traditional way of Jewish life in the East End of London that really should have disappeared years ago. But not while Leon is around to keep the lights switched on. Generally speaking, you know, when it's a big kiddish, um, you know, which somebody's donated uh, as for tomorrow, so I have to come here because you just don't get the range locally. It's a mixed nuts oh, and raisins. Oh, that's what I was looking for. That's it. Sorry. Yes. Just the one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One. one. You walk into a place like this, and there's mothers with buggies yeah, and it's, children. It's, yeah. it's new generations. Yeah. Whereas, of course, in East London now, the majority of the people who are going to the shuls are older. Yeah. There are some younger Jews who have moved into the trendier areas, you know, around, say, uh, the old brewery in Brick Lane, but they're not part of the community, that's the thing. You know, and just come to it. It will be helping the community, helping to keep the shores going. I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm being followed today. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Hi, hi. <laughs> you know Leon? Yes, yes. The regular. The regular, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding the basket today. Oh, that's And as we walk to the entrance, blue paint, but significantly the Star of David. Of course, yes. Above the door. Above the door. And the date, 1923, 56-84. The Jewish year. East London Central Synagogue. And you've got the times of services. Uh, as was, as was. These are the daily services from when we used to be open. 
Um, now we're only open on um, uh, Shabbos, Shabbat uh, mornings and on all Jewish festival mornings. Quite fortified, isn't it? You know, uh, gates, yes, yes. grills. Here we go, you'll hear the alarm go off. So there's a few keys. <laughs> oh, this is just one bunch. I've got another bunch in my pocket for some of the other doors. A lot of keys. So this is the key to the shul itself. Yeah. The interior. Yeah. I just wonder, could, it's, yeah, I just want to... Could I just stand here for a second and just take it all in? Because synagogue shouldn't be empty, of course. They need people. It becomes just a building. But when you stand here and you know you've known this place all your life, yes. How does it feel being here by the ark, looking at the shawl, listening to the sounds? It's hard to explain. I feel at home. You know, um, I feel a very strong affinity here. And uh, quite often, I'm here when it's you know sunset or whatever. I mean. In the area, I don't particularly like coming out by myself late at night. But actually, inside the shawl, um, I'm fine. You know, I don't find it creepy or whatever, being on my own in the dark here. Um, it's, I just feel, I don't know, sense of belonging. You know, but I, I'm third generation of my family to be connected with the shawl. Um, my mother's father was the vice chairman of the Belzer Shield. Professor Bill Fishman, the great historian of the East yes, End, and yes. particularly the Jewish East End, he would always talk about what he was doing, kind of keeping the flame alive of the East End um, and the, Jew the Jewish part and the Jewish story. He would say that, you know, this was the, the last of the Mohicans, you know, because everything was going, you know, that drift away from the East End. And you've seen that drift. Yes. You've yes. never left. No. no. Whereas your contemporaries, your peers have moved on. Where I live, I'm literally the last Jew in the square. And it used to be very, at least half of the neighbours were Jewish. And before my time, it was entirely Jewish. So um, huge, huge changes. Yeah. Is that because you're obstinate? You don't want yeah. to move? No. Well, why haven't you, Leo? It's the way my life has turned out. The same with most of the other regulars who come here. Um, but various different reasons um, most are single and in, in my case also um, one of my biggest regrets I mean now I could be a grandfather and I didn't have children and, um, but had I had a fam you know my own family no doubt I would have joined the exodus you know to um, a different area the house garden and whatever and that just didn't happen for me Could you show me Leon where you used to sit with your father where did I you I still do I still sit there I mean I don't bother sitting in the boarders really? box so no. where did where do you sit uh, I sit in my father's I used to sit here but my father sat here and this is where I sit the rabbi in fact sits just in front over there he also doesn't sit in the official minister's box um and it's much more informal these days. Maybe if the shawl was full, we would be more formal and, you know, sit in the um, correct places. <laughs> but as it is, we just don't bother. I know it's sort of turning the clock back a bit and sort of 
raiding the memory banks. But if you're sitting here and thinking about those big Sabbaths or the big holy days and the big festivals when the women's gallery was packed, what was that like just sitting on, on this row and just seeing all the people in the show? Um, firstly, as in all shows, even with a small medium, there's always a general hubbub of conversation. The more orthodox the shawl is, the worse the decorum. But I can remember there used to be arguments, you know, on the high holy days especially. You see, the seats are numbered, and members would get their membership card and also the seat allocation. And there'd be arguments, you're in my seat, no, you're in my seat, will you shift up, and so on. Uh, and then you'd get the warden say, calling up to the gallery, please, quiet, can you stop talking? And, it's, and then it would go quiet for a moment and then would start up again. Uh, but it was a very good atmosphere. And even in those days, of course, you would get people who didn't go to shawl all year. There'd be some who only came for the high holy days, the Yom Yom Narayim. So, of course, it would be, oh, hello, how are you? And all this kind of thing. The other thing I remember, which you don't see anymore, was, again, uh, especially on Yom Kippur, but even Rosh Hashanah, there'd always be somebody who would take out a little packet of snuff and pass it round. For years, I thought snuff was meant to make you sneeze because all of them would be sneezing away afterwards. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you don't see that anymore, really, in, in short. Quick check. Leon Silver defying the death bells of this fragile community in the Jewish East End. For writer Sarah Tuttle Singer, her quest to keep her memories alive is much more private and is bound up with one particular relationship, with her mother. It's been an ongoing conversation, but what might appear odd to some is that Sarah's mother has been dead for years. My dead mother communicates with me using fortune cookies. Seriously. Okay, fine, you're probably thinking I'm a total lunatic, but you've got to understand something about my mother. She was a woman of kavanah. Kavanah is the Hebrew word for intention, and my mother lived her life by this principle. Her actions were purposeful, from choosing where to plant the pink roses at the start of spring to how she would embrace the flickering light of the Shabbat candles while she said the prayer every Friday evening. And in the end, which came way too soon for her, she chose how she would die, at home, on a strangely sunny day in the middle of January, while she looked out at the pink roses in bloom, just beyond the bedroom window. My mother took everything in stride, even her death. Before she was too sick to get out of bed, she sat down at her desk. She sipped her cup of instant coffee in the ceramic mug I made at summer camp. She smoked a cigarette. Hey, she was a goner anyway. She opened her desk and pulled out her favorite notepad, the one with the giraffes in the bottom corner that I had given her for Mother's Day. Putting the fun in funeral, she wrote with a shaky hand as she listed all of the things that she wanted at her funeral service. 
like the music, Bob Dylan and Bach, or the speakers, my dad, her college roommate, and me. And of course, the food. Roll in rye deli with extra chopped liver for your grandfather, she wrote, or else he'll be really depressed. And make sure you get lots and lots and lots of cheap wine. Dear one, she said to me in her reedy voice just before she died, remember, no matter what, you are loved. I squeezed her hand and felt her pulse twang with purpose through her veins. Don't be scared, dear one, she said. Death is only the next big adventure. Oh, but I was more than scared. I was terrified. Because my mother was my due north. I was twenty-three years old, stumbling through college, unsure of myself, and I needed my mother to guide me through that murky space between adolescence and adulthood. She could feel my hand shaking in hers. Don't be scared, dear one, she said again, her voice soft but strong. You are loved, and even when I'm gone, I'll still be with you. And I believed her. So a few days after she died, I started looking for signs, waiting for a breath of wind on my neck, searching for a Morse code message in a flickering candle, hoping to catch a whiff of her fragrance, two parts patchouli, one part cigarettes, in an empty room, anything, anything, nothing. But mom, you promised, I sobbed one afternoon when I was back at university, missing her so much my skin hurt. You promised. I fell asleep crying falling hard and fast into wobbly dreams where we all sat around the Shabbat dinner table together as we had a thousand times. When I woke up, sledged with sticky tears and smeared mascara, I saw it. Lying next to me on the pillow was a small strip of paper, the kind you unfold when you crack open a fortune cookie with the words, You are loved, written on it in small red typeset. I picked up the fortune, holding it with trembling fingers. I hadn't eaten Chinese food in weeks, and I didn't remember seeing this particular message. And even if I had cracked open a cookie to discover you are loved, what the hell was it doing on my pillow when it hadn't been there hours earlier? My heart tripped, and I got out of bed, and I checked the door to the studio apartment. Locked. I looked in the bathroom. Empty. The kitchen. Clear. Crouched down, I checked under the bed. <laughs> no monsters there. Only the plink, plink, plink of the faucet dripping in the bathroom played with the stillness in the apartment. People, I gotta tell you, all horror movies have this sound right before someone gets gutted. Plink, plink, plink. But then, just as I was thinking seriously about calling the police, a ray of light pierced the window and illuminated the fortune nestled on the pillow. And in my mind, I heard the words spoken clearly in my mom's voice. You are loved. Slowly, I picked up the fortune again and whispered the words aloud, You are loved. I said it again with more conviction this time. You are loved. And for the first time since my mom died, I felt safe. Look, I have no idea how that fortune cookie message got on my pillow, and I'm not sure it matters all that much anyway, because I believed my mom when she told me she would always be with me, and with purpose I am choosing to find meaning in what happened that afternoon shortly after she died. And yes, there have been other messages in fortune cookies since then. 
When I was in the throes of writing my senior thesis, she sent me this. Success comes to those who work hard. And like she promised, so it was. When I gave birth to my first child and I vanished down the rabbit hole where midnight was the new morning and my baby would not stop crying and I doubted myself with every fiber of my being, she sent me this. It's always darkest before the dawn. And like she promised, so it was. Before I packed up my life into twelve suitcases and moved to Israel with my family, she sent me this. Traveling more often is important for your health and happiness. And like she promised, so it was. The fortune cookie thing has become a legend in my family and among her close friends. So tell me, have you heard from your mom lately? Her college roommate asked me recently. The thing is, I live in Israel now, where the dim sum tastes just like my bubby's kanadalach, and fortune cookies are really hard to find. So I wasn't hearing from my mom nearly as much. Oh, and I miss her. Every day I miss her especially when each day takes me further and further from the last day I saw her, as I begin to forget the sound of her voice or the way that she moved. Oh, how I miss her, as the inside jokes that were only ours and ours alone slip from my memory like those last wisps of a dream, and I'm no longer sure what she would say to me when I'm struggling with something that's bigger than I can handle. But still, she finds a way to remind me that no matter what, she's still here, even in a place almost as unlikely as the space between a crunchy fortune cookie. And just yesterday, when I got in a taxi from the central bus station in Jerusalem, I looked up and hanging from the driver's rearview mirror was a pale pink heart inscribed with the words, You are loved. I blinked. It couldn't be. <laughs> but it was. Can I take a picture? I asked the driver, my fingers trembling as I entered my iPhone password and selected a photo app. It's a long story, but my mother likes to send me messages like these, even though she died eight years ago. Okay, fine. So I'm not sure which was harder for him to understand, my whacked-out Hebrew or my whacked-out explanation, but it doesn't matter. Yes, dear one, the driver told me. Take the picture and take the heart with you. That way, you never forget. in the house or, or mostly in the garden they had a nice little garden they had uh, strawberries and Hans Manasseh will always keep the flame alight for the short time in his early life that he lived in Britain vegetables all sorts of vegetables in the garden and they had rabbits there which we fed later on when I lived with them listening to Hans you wouldn't believe he spent all but seven of his 83 years in Vienna in those seven years, Hans had to build a whole new identity as a British boy that his daughter, novelist Eva Manassa, has been probing at for years. She had very little to go on, because like so many Jewish children caught up in the turbulence of Nazi Europe, Hans didn't talk much about his past. When I was a child, the first thing I knew about my father's past was... He speaks English very well. In Vienna in the 70s, this was quite unusual. It took years to find out why. That he grew up in England because he was a refugee from Nazi Germany, that he had to leave or otherwise he would have been killed. 
England and English people always meant a lot to my father. He used to mention the British fair play. And every year he had to have his Christmas pudding with custard, even though nobody else liked it very much. Christmas pudding, custard, English fair play and the English Christmas carols he used to roar, these were definitely motives of my childhood. My father Hans, born in March 1930, was the third and youngest child of his parents. His father Richard was a Viennese Jew whose ancestors had come from Poland. His mother Dolly was a Catholic girl from Moravia. They had all three children registered at the Jewish community, which means that they considered themselves Jewish. And so did the Nazis. When Nazi German troops invaded Austria in 1938, most Jewish people tried to get out immediately. My grandparents were quite poor, which made it difficult. Then they somehow must have learned about the kinder transport to Britain. Boys and girls wave a greeting to England, land of the free. They are between the ages of five and 17, the advance guard of the first 5,000 Jewish and non-Aryan child refugees from Germany. I, I left Vienna with my brother on a train. My parents said to me, you're going to a, a holiday or a, a sort of adventure. You s stick together with your brother and we'll soon be coming. When war broke out, the English schools uh, were evacuated to the country. And the school where I where I went to, was sent to Dunstable in Bedfordshire. I learned English pretty quick, I think in, a, in three months or so. But on the other hand, I soon forgot all my German because I, for, for about seven years or more than seven years, I never spoke a word with anybody. In Dunstable, my father was taken in by Mr. and Mrs. Cook, a couple we knew as Uncle Tom and Aunt Flossie. These were the people my father stayed with for the rest of his time in Britain. Poor people living in a tiny little house at the very end of the street. My dad always told us how nice they were with him, almost like real parents, and how lucky he was to be with them. I very well remember a photograph where the cooks sat on their sofa together with their dog and on the back it read Auntie, Uncle and Poodle. This always seemed very funny to me. One time, many years later, Uncle Tom took him to his pub in Dunstable and introduced him to everybody as my son. He did not hear from his parents during the war. In fact, he had no idea whether they were still alive. But by now, he was living an English life. He went to school, he started working in a factory, he had a girlfriend. Above all, he was playing football. I started playing football already in Vienna when I was seven or eight. We just played in the streets with a lot of other boys and uh, or in a, in a nearby park. And when I came to England, I, of course, just wanted to keep on playing. And, and I soon found, a, a, when I was in Dunstable, I found a possibility of playing with the, 
with the, with the local Pioneers Boys Club. When I was 15, uh, scouts apparently thought that I was uh, quite a, a promising young player and informed Arsenal and uh, I late, later on I got this letter from this, from this scout where Arsenal told him they had already heard about me and, and if I could I should come to, to them for a trial match and maybe they could sign me. After Preston had kicked off, the Gunners were attacking. Then, within three minutes, the whistle went for hands and the penalty was given. Leslie Cunton took the kick but missed. But it was not to be. A letter changed the course of his destiny. The war had ended and all of a sudden my father received a letter in German. End of 1946, I got a letter, I think, from either from the Red Cross or from the Quakers, that my parents were still alive. When I came to the Westbahnhof and we got off the train and my parents were standing there with my brother. It was a very strange uh, experience. It was a mixture of, of happiness, of, of, of joy, of curiosity. And also there was still some little bit of sadness having left England where I had so many friends and where I was playing football where I had a good job. My father had, had rented a, a car, a big truck, uh, and it was on the back of the truck that was open, and we, we drove through the streets. Everything was bombed out. There was damage all over the place. It looked terrible. The whole, the whole city looked terrible. I didn't know what to, what to expect, and, and I couldn't speak a word German. When I was old enough to understand what had happened, this was the scene that fascinated me the most. Or perhaps I should say it gave me the creeps. Here was this young man, just returned from seven years of being away, confronted at Westbahnhof with his old and shaken parents who he could barely remember. They had to pretend that they were all so happy together. But they did not know each other anymore. They could not even communicate with each other. It took years till my father could admit that it was hard for him to leave England, that he was unsure whether he would like living back in Austria. My grandfather was a huge football fan, as enthusiastic as my father, and that must have brought them together, that his son turned out to be a great football talent. In fact, my father went on to play for two major Austrian clubs and twice in the Austrian national team. He won the Austrian championship with his team Vienna and he remembers the fans carrying him on their shoulders. 
He also managed to get a job which allowed him to go back to Britain on a regular basis so that he could stay in contact with Mr. and Mrs. Cook, with Tom and Flossie, as long as they were alive. But my father never played for Arsenal. He played against them once, but never fulfilled his dream of playing for them. Then, late in his life, he had the chance to do something he had not done for decades. A friend arranged tickets to Highbury to see the team he had loved all those years. And goes Adams. Throughout that time, he had never stopped keeping those different flames alive. His love for Arsenal, his love for his parents, both the Austrian ones and the English ones. I'll never forget that day at Highbury. That's what they've been waiting for! It was a match between Arsenal and Ipswich. Gritty resistance from Ipswich Town, but finally broken. I remember all these cheerful people flocking to the stadium, everything in white and red. Youngberg! When they needed him today, Freddy has been ready. I had the impression that all my father's expectations were fulfilled in the very middle of this exultant English crowd. Just look around, he said. What about this atmosphere? This is what he always used to say. The mood, the cheer in an English football stadium is like nowhere else in the world. And I agree. And for more information about Eva Manassa's novel, Vienna, based on a saga of three generations of an Austrian family, take a look at the Sounds Jewish blog. From Highbury, the stadium of football dreams, to the dance halls of old Jewish holiday resorts of America, where an unexpected fusion of two cultures took place, Jewish and Latino. Years ago, I discovered a worn-out LP record with the amazing title Bagels and Bongos, which was languishing in a bin in a Jewish charity shop in northwest London. I would know nothing about this bizarre musical document if it weren't for Josh Kuhn, professor at the University of Southern California. Josh and his fellow enthusiasts at the Idelson Society for Musical Preservation are determined to resurrect this kind of music from vinyl oblivion and they've now compiled their first ever collection. It's a scream how Levine does the rumba. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. With the playing of their theme, the Grossinger Hotel takes great pride in presenting Tito Puente and his world-famous orchestra. On December 4th, 1959, Tito Puente and his orchestra played the ballroom of a Catskills hotel. It was a common enough scene in those days, a Borscht Belt leisure palace in the sour cream Sierras, packed with vacationing Jews from the city, all dressed in their weekend best, trying out their mambo moves within an arm's length and a skirt's twirl of some of Latin music's finest magicians. If you played Latin dance music, you played the Catskills.
Tito Puente's Night at Grossinger's Hotel in 1959 ended up as a live album with liner notes that advertised the hotel's tennis courts, ice rinks, and ski slopes, a summer and winter paradise where the mambo never stops. After running through an intro number, Puente launched into another dance floor stomper, Managua, Nicaragua, that added its own twist on this Latin Jewish story. That song was written by Irving Fields, the former Yiddish theater performer and cruise ship piano player, who that same year, on the venerable Decca Records, had released Bagels and Bongos, a reimagining of Jewish favorites through various Latin American dance styles. Hava Nagila had become Havana Nagila, or as the humorist Stanley Golden once put it, the history of Jews in America, from Shah Shah, Yiddish for hush hush, to Cha Cha. For me, though, it's really the other history of Jews in America, a history that is rarely told, one that takes early shape on vaudeville stages, blooms in the 1940s and 50s, and eventually transforms in the salsa scenes of the 1970s. A turning point came when Max Hyman, the Jewish owner of the famed New York City nightclub, the Palladium, instituted an all-Latin music policy in 1949. And Jewish mambo dancers, the so-called mamboniks, became some of Latin dance music's most zealous advocates. By mid-century, to be Jewish meant knowing how to mambo, and no bar mitzvah or synagogue social was complete without a cha-cha-cha. I started out to go to Cuba, soon I was at Miami Beach. They're not so very far from Cuba, oh, what a rumba they teach. Palm trees are whispering your te quiero. What could I do but stay a while? I met a Cuban caballero. We dance in true Latin style. I knew nothing of this story growing up in Los Angeles, where I associated Jewish music with the horror dance lessons of Hebrew school playgrounds, but never with the musical mix of my thoroughly Latino city. I'll save a banana for mañana. Meanwhile, I've heaven in my reach. I found the charm of old Havana in the rumba at Miami Beach. This was a misconception, of course. There was plenty of evidence to the contrary. For example, the Latin-tinged L.A. R&B of Jewish songwriters Lieber and Stoller, or Herb Alpert's mariachi and marimba pop experiments. But as a young listener, I didn't yet have access to that archive. Looking back, it almost seemed hidden, buried, or obscured. American Jews seemed to be far more comfortable talking about their musical brotherhood with African Americans, from Tin Pan Alley up through the alliances of the civil rights movement. But where was the musical history of Jews and Latinos figuring each other out through music? Was Latin music a path to being American, just the same way that black music had long been? I started thinking about these questions when I first encountered the tip of the archival iceberg. I was researching the music of Mickey Katz, the 1950s musical comic and klezmer clarinetist, whose specialty was over-the-top Yiddish parodies of American pop. 
which meant that sandwiched into Katz's releases for Capitol Records was the story of a Jewish grandmother whose kugel was hot for Xavier Kugat. Her kugel is hot for Xavier Kugat. She made the shotgun mambo mad She's even hip the jamas And now and then she gets a yen To dig Fernando Lamas She won't touch the minuet To her it's strafe like him But Poopy Kempo knows her tempo Makes her holler Shame she don't dig George My Yiddish mambo My Yiddish mambo my Yiddish Mambo is certainly not the holy grail of the Latin Jewish musical story, but it was mine, and it got me digging for more, scouring used record stores and thrift shops for these ignored artifacts of another musical world. Finding them took some patience, though, because nobody seemed to know where to put these musical orphans. Sometimes I'd find a copy of the Cuban band leader with the best name ever, Pupi Campo, doing his version of Joe and Paul, which was originally a Yiddish radio ad for a Brooklyn clothing store. And I'd find it in the Judaica section. And then I would find the guys who originally sang it, the Jewish duo, the Barton Brothers, singing about a guy they called Mambo Moish, buried in the miscellaneous Latin section. It wasn't uncommon to stumble on Fiddler on the Roof Goes Latin in the Israel section and Irving Berlin in Latin America filed under pop. Of course, if all else failed, if I struck out in the back of a National Council for Jewish Women thrift store or pulled an empty sleeve out of a box at somebody's yard sale, there was always eBay. And even though it's kind of a collector's sin to troll eBay auctions, I confess to winning a few that put me in touch with albums by Alfred Levy, better known as Alfredito, and albums by perhaps the Latin Jewish world's best-known poster boy, Brooklyn's own Larry Harlow. He headed to Cuba, studied Afro-Cuban religion, and rose in the ranks of salsa known as El Judío Maravilloso, the marvelous Jew, even when penning songs with titles like Yo Soy Latino, I Am Latino. Yo nací en un pollo de la campiña lejana Y la música latina es la que quiero cantar Nadie me puede contar del sitio donde nací Pues yo me crié allí con mis padres desde pequeño Vivo en Nueva York y a veces sueño con volver un día allí I started to see a counter archive of sorts begin to emerge since the earliest days of the American recording industry, Jews and Latinos have been involved in often parallel, often overlapping musical pursuits, sharing neighborhoods and radio frequencies, joking in Yiddish and Spanish, playing each other's music, listening to each other's music, and bonding over a sometimes mutual, sometimes unequal outsider status. They were fellow travelers in their dance with mainstream white identity. In the 40s and 50s, this was as true in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Harlem as it was in the East L.A. neighborhood of Boyle Heights, where a Jewish-owned music store, the Phillips Music Company, was a neighborhood hub for Latin music. 
In 2005, when I teamed up with my friends and fellow record geeks, Roger Bennett, David Katznelson, and Courtney Holt, to form the Idelson Society for Musical Preservation, it was these records and these stories that sparked the inspiration for our mission. Just finding these old records wasn't going to be enough. We had to help preserve them, but we also had to reanimate them, keep them glowing all through the night. So we reissued Bagels and Bongos from Irving Fields and a 1961 album called Mazel Tov, Mis Amigos and have now assembled It's a Scream, How Levine Does the Rumba, a two-CD set that tries to summarize this history into a one-stop musical buffet. Some of the blintzes and burritos, ole, ole, oive experiments will make you laugh, some might make you cringe, others will get you up and dancing. But all of them should get us thinking about what history sounds like when we hear it in new ways. And that's it for this edition of Sounds Jewish. Thanks to Josh Kuhn, Leon Silver, Sarah Tuttle-Singer, and Hans and Eva Manasseh for sharing their stories. Thanks also to our sponsors, JW3. Keeper of the Flame was presented by me, Alan Dean, and produced by Sarah Peters. <laughs>